This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. There are deadheads who've been trucking with the Grateful Dead for nearly half a century, and Star Trek fans who've been putting on rubber Vulcan ears for almost as long. But as fans go, Wagner obsessives take things to a whole nother level, whether it is seeking out obscure recordings of German radio broadcasts or hopping on a plane to hear a ring cycle in the Amazon jungle. In this bicentennial year of Richard Wagner's birth, there are lots of chances for so-called ring nuts to geek out. Today, we will consider Wagner fandom with three guests. Will Berger is author of Wagner Without Fear and a producer at the Metropolitan Opera. Jolie Jensen is a communications professor at the University of Tulsa who has studied fans and fandom. And Andrew Zachs is a self-professed Wagnerite in New York who has seen nearly 50 productions of The Ring Cycle. So, Will, I'm going to start with you. You don't usually hear people talk about Verdi or Puccini in quite this way. What is it about Wagner that makes for such rabid fans? Part of it is a media construct. Let's face facts. It's not The Grateful Dead and it's not Star Trek. But just by what you need, the resources you need to produce Wagner, especially The Ring of the Nibelung, it's going to be a different sort of experience. It, it is a destination. It has to be. It's meant to take up a week of your life, to be a thing apart. So it has to do a lot with the thing itself also. Andrew, what's your reaction to that? I think Richard Wagner was really Steven Spielberg's predecessor. He created all parts of the artwork. And in some ways, he's the most successful artist that ever lived because 150 years, 160 years after his works, people assemble and see them as he would like to have them seen over the course of hours and hours and hours and days. And I don't think there's any other artist that has that type of draw. So what was the conversion experience, Andrew, that made you become a Wagner fan? Was it one particular performance that did it? Well, I'm an eclectic person, so I've always liked many different things. To me, Wagner signifies the 19th century. If I want to have time transport to the 19th century, I go and see a ring or a Wagner opera. It changes your perception of time, the politics. Everything is tumultuous in the way the 19th century was, and it, it excites me that way. Okay. Do you make a distinction between Wagnerite and ring nut? I don't. I see a lot of rings, but I also have seen hundreds of Wagner performances of all different kinds. And Parsifal is probably my favorite of the Wagner operas. But you have, there is a different experience going to see The Ring and to a certain extent Parsifal just because it's long, it's meant to be a thing apart. You're not supposed the to. The Ring, you mean. The Ring and Parsifal. You're not supposed to do what I've done many times, run from the office across town on the bus with a slice of pizza, wolfing it down, sit in your seat and then try to be transported. You're supposed to be somewhere where you can immerse yourself in it. It was written for that kind of experience. In that way, I'll allow it's a little bit like The Grateful Dead, which always comes up. I also happen to be a Star Trek fan. But it, it, that it is supposed to be a separate level of reality to a certain extent. Jolie, I hear you trying to jump in here. <laughs> or at least chuckling. Well, yeah, you, what you're trying to get at is whether there's a difference, right, between Wagner fans and Star Trek fans 
You've written a lot about super fans. Right. And what I'm interested in in general is this immersion experience that that both Andrew and Will are talking about, this aesthetic experience that I think fans simply are misunderstood and misrepresented as kind of crazy people trying to compensate for something missing in their lives. But in fact, they're really experts, you know, they're experts who don't have institutional credentials, but are eager to enact and display and share their expertise and their passion. And so the desire to be transported and immerse yourself in experience, as as we've just been talking about, seems to me is very widespread. But fans are just more willing and able, I think, especially in today's world, uh, to do so with each other. It used to be an isolated aesthetic experience. can now be sort of socially enacted. And the ring cycle is a wonderful destination and way to do it. One wants to see 19th century opera in a 19th century fashion with appropriate time for drink and food in between the acts. The conviviality of experiencing it in that fashion is without compare. There must be other kinds of Wagner fans, right, who who may want to do it differently, for whom it isn't the 19th century, maybe, but who enjoy the more modernized versions, maybe? Is that well, possible? Well, the thing about it is if one goes to uh, to Bayreuth, as I will next mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the month, or of August, it's very hard not to experience it in a 19th century fashion. There's wow. an hour and a half in between each act. You either have to wander around a garden or, you know, eat, you're forced in some way to really experience it the way it was intended to be experienced, which I find wonderful. You're you're experiencing it as Wagner intended. Exactly. Do you feel a kind of like you're sort of, is it as an homage or a loyalty to his original vision that you're kind of enacting? No, not necessarily. I I think that we have a tendency to make opera into a high art when it was really the television of its age. That's why I mentioned the Spielberg connection. It, right. it, you know, it, what I find fascinating about it is it's very political, so it brings up a lot of issues to discuss. With regard to the politics, Wagner was, as most people know, not a nice man. He stole somebody else's wife. He was very fond of spending other people's money. He was notoriously anti-Semitic. How do you become obsessed with somebody who was so flawed personally? You just set that all aside and I think you have to put him in his historical context Uh, a lot of people who would like to ban Wagner music and so forth uh, blame him for the people who liked his music in in the future which I think is a little unfair Um, there was a lot of anti-semitism in the 19th century and uh, I think you know Hitler's anti-semitism came more from Henry Ford for instance than it did from Wagner and um, we don't really talk about that. But uh, but I think we have to treat the subject I mean, seriously. And, there, you know, it's there. And one has to understand exactly what was going on in the period before the development of the Second uh, Reich when Germany was unified. But the music speaks for itself. So there are a lot of people who, you know, have bad political views and so forth, and their artwork is still attractive to people. And I think we can enjoy it, but I think we have to have our eyes open to, you know, what it means and understand what he was saying. And, Will, I know you're dying. Oh, well, everything (laughs) he said and a lot more. Um, Yes, uh, we're going to have to face the fact right away this guy was very, very bad 
he was a bad person. Although I'm going to take exception to he stole someone else's wife because she was nobody's victim. So, and he this was not a recurring habit. There were two uh, two very notable incidences of, incidents of him being involved with married women, both of whom and whose husbands colluded in these affairs. So they're really, really murky. But everything Andrew said, and in addition, what I want to know is I want to use Wagner as a departure point for this urgent, urgent conversation about politics and art, not as an end point, not that we only talk about it in Wagner. I want to talk about it in Wagner. I want to talk about it in everything. Whenever I'm here, why didn't anybody, when we were performing Dialogues of the Carmelites at the Met, ask about the source material and who wrote it? And you would find some distinct connections to movements like Action Francaise, the French fascist movement, it's never brought up. The lesson of Wagner should be we need to look at these issues in all art, not to say as long as we know to put down Wagner, then we can get away with anything else and we never need to question it, which seems to be the function it's been serving. And that's really unacceptable. Well, and I also think it's important to look at the ways in which Hitler was a Wagner fan. I mean, it's not enough to look at Wagner, but it's also just look at the ways in which works of arts can be can be altered and shifted in order to promote particular ideologies. So the politics and art connection that you bring up, Will, is also interesting from the fan perspective, right? Right. But the ways in which different fans understand the meaning of a particular form in different ways. My, I'm Jewish, so I feel like I can say something about this too, which is that it is, you know, anti-Semitism needs to be called out when it's there and discussed and put in context, but it also cannot be hidden or avoided. We have to address it, but that doesn't change that the, what fans are hearing in the music may or may not be anti-Semitic. Hitler's favorite opera actually was The Merry Widow. Yeah, his favorite, <laughs> his favorite movie was King Kong also. And and so, so uh, you know, I, th- th- these things don't, don't necessarily come up. And uh, I think it's, you know, the, 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 the study of 19th century anti-Semitism is a, is a big, you know, long history. And Wagner, Wagner's wife, his second wife, was dramatically more anti-Semitic than Ooh, he was. Oh, baby, yeah. Um, as, you know, if you read her work, so it was a complicated issue, and even the way in which uh, Jews are portrayed in the ring is yeah. a complicated issue as well. The, the now, are, are fans involved in this, or is this something that scholars? I they mean, should be. The good are ones the, are. I mean, are the fans aware and talking about this, or is this something that is more in the scholarly world? No, I, I think, I mean, the, the last time I was, there was an incident which took place last time I was in Bayreuth, when it was an off, it wasn't a ring year, but there, were, there was a Parsifal where Kundry didn't die. Kundry is, you know, to me, it depicts a Jewish character and one of the most anti-Semitic scenes in the whole Wagner canon. In this particular production, she doesn't die. And there was lively debate as to what this meant and, and whether she should have died and, and, and so forth. But what the German director was getting at in this piece was that there is redemption for Jews who convert without death, essentially, and there was lively debate about this subject. So I think that that's good. Look, 
Yes, fans participate in it to the extent that if you say you're going to a Wagner opera, you will always get at least a raised eyebrow. Like, oh, so you're actually a crypto fascist. And I want to say, and that is the concern. That's the issue. Was Wagner an anti Semitic, very bad person? Yes. Will going to these performances make you that? No. Andrew, let's talk geekdom. You have seen yeah. how many ring cycles? Uh, between 40 and 50. Between 40 and 50. I don't, I don't have the exact number. What is the greatest length you have gone to? To I, I once, in 2005, in May, I went to what was really the second production of The Ring in Brazil. The first in Manaus? One, in Manaus. Really? Yes. Ooh, now you've really impressed and, me. And uh, <laughs> I show pictures of that production, but he was there. It was a wonderful production. It had a a budget of $1.6 million. And for that $1.6 million, they created an unbelievable piece of art, which I think it, it, you don't have to spend tons of money and have crazy apparatus and so forth, and even amazing singers. that They happen to have a jewel box of a little opera house, uh, which was built in the late 19th century by, the, by rubber traders. But... Uh, that was probably as far as I went to see, and uh, I had to fly all the way to Sao Paulo and then back to Manaus. So, Jolie, I want to ask you, because Will was so visibly impressed by the fact that Andrew has seen this particular ring cycle, is there an element of one-upmanship to all of this? With, with Well, absolutely, but it's the insider knowledge that, you know, not everybody would be impressed. I mean, what's so cool is when somebody who knows the world you know can appreciate what it is that you've accomplished or done or attended. So it's really a matter of insider knowledge, I think, rather than just mere status or one-upsmanship, that it's such so validating when someone can appreciate it. So just going, oh, you heard some opera in some jungle, but oh my gosh, that production and this and this, and I've only seen pictures. I mean, how gratifying for everybody, right? I mean, to be able to share that level of, of detailed knowledge. So that's true in sports, it's true in music, it's true in, you know, it's true in all forms that have fans, right? That that, that uh, shared arcana that um, means you can share an, a kinship of appreciation. You found a kindred spirit, right, who really sees what you've accomplished. Andrew, do you ever go to a production of, to see a ring cycle twice or three times when they change conductor or cast? Oh, ab- absolutely. I, I, the Schenck Ring at the Met. I've you know there were seasons when I saw it two and a half times, or uh, I think that was probably my limit. Uh, but I you know, what's what's wonderful about opera as opposed to uh, te- television is that every performance is different. Right. You can have the same cast and the same conductor, and it will be different in two, two nights in a row. That's important to understand. That's very important to understand. That, and that's what I'd like to ask both of you then, because as a media scholar, so what's the difference between a live and a recorded? I mean, how can you're, you're describing that that you know, you know it's always different, it's always rich. So, is there something then about the about the having been to these performances that can't be reproduced that you had to be there? Yes. That, that Yes, and so that's part of the magic or the power, right? That's um, part of why you bother to do it. There's, I mean, yeah. for me, the other people are interested in uh, recordings because they preserve a moment, and that's great. But this particular form of opera really, for me, works best live. There's something in the air. There's something about having to take the journey uh, within that time span that, mm-hmm. and doing it in a room full of people 
who have come from different places but are there at one point. There's something in between. Wagner spoke about this, about the space between the audience, the orchestra, and the pit, the singers on the stage. That's where the magic is. It's it's the mystical space in between everybody, and I find that to be true. And and the and the magic is is you know in the hour and a half uh, intermissions one never knows who one's going to speak to and about what and it, it the, the whole experience of going on a pilgrimage of sorts to uh to see a, a work over a number of days it's always different and it's an experience so speaking of this sense of community i'm afraid i have to ask the hat with horns question there are fan bases like this have costumes <laughs> action figures memorabilia you name it Andrew, do you have the hat with the horns? Do you have a Richard Wagner action figure? I don't. I don't have any. Unfortunately, I don't have any hats with horns. Or, but do you know I. Anybody who does? I do. You know, I belong to a club where we dress in black tie, and I generally will go uh, to a ring in black tie. Or if it's in Bayreuth, I might wear lederhosen one one day. The formal version. Um, formal. So, whatever's uh, appropriate for the particular venue. You know what's funny about the whole hat with horns thing? I mean, a lot of things are funny about it. But, you know, it seems like I first started reading about that. People were writing about it. And then I saw people doing it. I really get yeah. this sense that it was like a phenomenon that somebody decided needed to happen, and then it happened in that weird media art creates life sort of way. I think it came from the cartoons, actually. Well, well yeah, I know, but as far as people identifying as wing nuts, a term that I didn't hear until I read it, and then I heard people self-identifying as. I mean, I'm not necessarily even saying that's bad or anything, but when I originally said there's some aspect of this phenomenon that's a bit of a construct, this strikes me as one of them. Now you will see that, but I read about it first. I also like Andrew's point that whatever you wear is somebody's idea of a costume. If you wear black tie to the opera, that's a costume. As RuPaul said, you're born naked, everything else is drag, so one way or another you're wearing a costume. But So there are fans, though, who do come in complete costume and by, do you look down on them? Is that kind of tacky? No, no, not at no. all. No, I mean, follow your bliss, man. Celebrating. <laughs> so there really are fans who... I mean, I look down on everybody equally. It's like, yeah, I look down. I look down on someone who's going to wear heels and heavy jewelry to a six-hour performance. I just think, well, you're kind of nuts. And as far as helmet with the horns, yay, great, wear it, work it, live it. Don't sit in front of me. I think that was created by Bugs Bunny. Well. Yeah. Yeah, and so it could be used ironically or playfully. I guess what I want to suggest is that one of the many wonderful, interesting things about fans is that they pl- they can play with their passion. Mm-hmm. You know, they can make fun of themselves and do it anyway. I mean, there's a really complicated and often a very engaging way in which we're self-aware, right? And I think that this could be a media construction that then is employed and deployed by fans in order to sort of, you know, play with their, their interests and their engagement. People who worry about the sanity of fans assume that everyone's taking themselves very, very seriously. And my experience is that they're, that they're, that they're taking themselves seriously and playfully simultaneously. Good point. Some of my favorite points, uh, parts of the ring actually, or these events, happen after the performance when everyone goes out, including the, the casts and mm. the choruses and... 
all you know drink beer and and talk about everything and it's a transformative experience for the musicians as well so uh that's the community that I find very attractive. So these communities can have fun, but there is also some great seriousness to this. There are a number of Wagner societies around the country and also around the world. The politics of those societies can get pretty serious. Last month, the Wagner Society in England tried to dethrone Wagnerian soprano Dame Gwyneth Jones, who had been president for 23 years. Will, what's going on there? God knows, but I, I imagine that's the same as, I mean, Jolie would probably speak to this well. I mean, I would imagine that's the same with any sort of convocation of devotees, right? I mean, would that be? Well, or any organization, I would say, look, yeah. we have to even be devotees. I mean, it really is just the nature of organizational life to decide that there's there's us and there's them, and we need to be in charge, and they don't. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. And fandom is just another social organization where we see it. Andrew, you mentioned that your interest sort of evolved out of your interest in the 19th century. There have been Wagner performances that have been very controversial and very far from any 19th century aspect. For instance, the recent rings at the Met and L.A. Opera. Is there agreement, disagreement? What do fans think about more radical staging? I have no problem with a with a production that's not Werksgetreu or true to the form. I loved Katharina Wagner's performance, for instance, of uh, Meistersinger, which was very controversial at <laughs> uh, Bayreuth. So it, when I say I enjoy being steeped in the 19th century, it's the, it's the text and the ideas and the format. And... I love new productions. I think that, that they're the way people express political views and, and, and spur conversation. We can no longer divide them between traditional and avant-garde. I don't even know what avant-garde means anymore in 2013. But it's much more nuanced than that. You can have good and bad productions of any genre. A lot of factors play into whether or not a production succeeds. Rarely does it have to do with the sets and costumes alone. Do you know what I mean? So it's definitely one thing that people will discuss. I, I hope the level of conversation about this issue keeps getting more nuanced and interesting because it is fascinating. But it's not quite as simple as, oh, they're wearing horned helmets or they're in outer space. It's really a, a complex and interesting subject. So I want to ask you, Andrew, favorite ring cycle for in terms of production and in terms of cast. Don't give me the entire cast, just which ones stand out in your mind as... Well, there's a recording of uh, Regine Crespin singing Brunhilde that I just listened to. Uh, I was unfortunately not present there, but I loved the interchange between uh, Votan and Regine Crespin there. Favorite that you've seen? Favorite that I've seen... It's, it's hard to say. I really it's the, Normally it's the last one, but I can't say that this time around. <laughs> Do you know what's neat is, and this plays to the recordings issue, it's rarely one. They'll be, well, this was great there, and she was great, and he wasn't, and sort of he like was fantasy great, baseball. and she was that. And that's why, to his point of it's different every night, not only that, what you actually see is different every night depending on how it's performed. That's kind of, it's not monolithic, and that that keeps it very vital and interesting and makes recordings a necessary part of the live experience and vice versa. They play off of each other that way. Ah, nice, yeah. So, Jolie, 
people often call opera an elitist art form. Does the fandom you've heard about here today suggest that's true or not true? Well, I'm not, I'm not someone who sees a vast difference between popular and high culture, except in the way that we construct those distinctions. So I know an awful lot of people who assume they will hate opera because it is high culture and then discover that they enjoy it, and vice versa, people who assume they'll hate country music because it's low culture or whatever. I mean, there's just a constant set of assumptions we make. But I think if we can learn how to be open to aesthetic experiences, wherever they are, however they're labeled, we live in a richer, more cosmopolitan world. So I guess that's, you know, that's my take on this, is that the differences between these cultural forms are constructed. They don't, they aren't essential. And once we acknowledge that, we can start talking about all these wonderful, nuanced differences between experiences and moments and genres and live versus recorded and, and all of, and, you know, and go from there. And help each other understand why we're moved by particular forms. And that's, that's where I love, I want fans to have voice so they can share their enthusiasm and their passion and their experience so that we can all learn to become richer aesthetically by learning through fans what we're missing when we're not fans. Discussion to be continued online. (laughs) Thank you all very much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having us here. Thank you very much. This has been Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. Our guests were Will Berger, author of Wagner Without Fear, Jolie Jensen from the University of Tulsa, and Andrew Zachs, a Wagner enthusiast based in New York. Brian Wise is our producer, and Bill O'Neill was our engineer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.